Hello and welcome to the weekly message podcast from Crozet United Methodist Church in Crozet, Virginia. We invite you to join us in person any Sunday for our contemporary service at 9.30 a.m. or for a more traditional service at 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org for further information. We hope you enjoy this week's message from Crozet UMC. This morning we're continuing our worship series on the hurtful things Christians say. And most of the things we've covered up to this point have been things that we, of course, intend to be good. We don't intend to say anything that would hurt somebody. These were things that have been developed over time. They've almost become a verbal culture in the church and what we offer outside of the church. And then upon closer examination, sometimes they don't convey exactly what we had hoped for them to convey. Well, today's is a little different. Today, if you've ever had someone turn to you while you were struggling or while you were in a place of darkness or undergoing pain and suffering, and someone said to you, well, if you just had a little more faith, your response was probably something of like, thanks, how about a paper cut and some lemon juice on it while you're at it? You know, no one, if they've had a heart attack, wants people to show up and go, well, you know, if you had just taken better care of yourself, or someone who found out that they're a diabetic, you know, this all could have been avoided. No one wants to hear that. It's really lacking compassion. It's not very empathetic. And honestly, it's really painful to have somebody put themselves in a position to look at you and say, you are failing. You didn't do something right. And most of us don't wake up in the morning and look in the mirror and think, wow, there's Jesus. I know I don't. But we have to remember that as we talk, we are not Jesus. Jesus knows us, knows what's inside of us in our heads, in our hearts, and in our spirits. And Jesus is able to declare whether or not we have faith, which Jesus does. But unless you wake up and mistakenly think you're Jesus, it's probably good not to keep saying this saying. And we see that it comes actually from the passage that I read to you a moment ago, that Jesus talks about having the faith of a mustard seed. Now, some of you may have grown up with lots of images of mustard seeds. And as a matter of fact, uh, it's prolific in Christianity, and so I'm sure that you cannot see what I have here. I have a vial that is filled with over 50 mustard seeds. It's about the size of my thumbnail, right? It's absolutely tiny. They are tiny little things. And when I was showing to the kids, I said, how many mustard seeds do you think are in here at 9.30? And the kids up front said, 10? I said, nope, more than 10. And they said, 20? I said, nope, more than 20. I said, there's over 50 in here. And they said, there's 50 in there? I said, there's 50 in here. Mustard seeds are really small. And then they all confessed to me that they don't like mustard. <sighs> I told them it's a very holy thing to have a hot, soft pretzel and mustard, and they're just not there yet. One day they will grow into that, and I will rejoice. However, I also told them that the best part about a mustard seed is what comes from it. When you plant it and allow it to be a seed and grow up, you'll discover that mustard trees are huge. They are very strong, they are very hardy. Not only do they provide a lot of ground shade for those that live on the ground, but they have multiple vigorous branches that are able to house many birds in their nests so that they can rear the next generation of birds. And so mustard trees are wonderful. They grow into these gigantic bushes, not unlike the southern magnolia tree. They grow up sort of like that. And so I thought it would always be a wonderful thing if every church planted a mustard seed and grew one of these giant things so that we could talk about, you know, when you start with this little, little thing and then something wonderful grows and can bless many, that it would actually help us to teach the parable of the mustard seed more. But let's give a little context to what happened with Jesus. If we go back to the beginning of chapter 17, we discover that Jesus has already gone up to the mountaintop, and there he has taken four of the 12 apostles. 
He takes up there, and then he is instantly transformed. We call this the transfiguration. His robes become dazzling white. And this is quite a feat for an itinerant homeless minister, to, for, all, for all of a sudden for your clothes to become dazzling white. And as he's doing this, he's being transfigured, there appears both Elijah and Moses with him and revealing to those four disciples who are with him that he is, in fact, the Messiah, that it is the fulfillment of the Mosaic prophecy as well as the Messianic prophecy, and Elijah is kind of testifying to this. And so they have this incredible encounter. They get to see something truly monumental, and he even explains what they're seeing to them. And then we get to this next piece where a man shows up and says to Jesus, I would like for you to heal my son. And instantly, I think we all feel compassion for this man. His son is sick. He is suffering from epilepsy, which gives his son seizures. That's bad enough. But if it weren't bad enough that the son suffers from these debilitating seizures, when he has them, he actually has opportunities to fall into open fire and into water, risking being burnt or drowned on top of the seizure. And so the man is looking for holy healing. He's looking for God's touch upon his son to set him free from these horrific experiences at the epilepsy he brings. And the scripture says that Jesus shows frustration mostly to his disciples over this instance because the man says, well, I brought him to your disciples and they couldn't do it, right? I tried going to them and I've taken it up a notch. Now I'm talking to you. And then Jesus does exactly what you would expect from our Lord and Savior. He sets the boy free. He brings him the healing and sends the father and the son home so that they can experience the joy of the healing that has come forth from the Savior. And then I love that it says that the disciples decide to wadire this a little bit, but of course they do it privately. They have a feeling that it's not going to go very well. He just called us a sinful and perverse generation. Let's, uh, let's do this behind closed doors. And so privately, the 12 of them come to Jesus, and they say, why couldn't we do it? Right? It's corporate language. Why couldn't we do that? You did it. Why can't we do it? And Jesus says, because you don't have any faith. And this is a recurrent theme in the gospel account of Matthew. Jesus is constantly wrestling with the lack of faith from his apostles. Four of them, one third of them, just witnessed the transfiguration on the mountaintop and the appearance of Moses and Elijah. And yet their faith wasn't enough to help this happen. It's not a question of individual faith. It's a collective. The disciples, why couldn't we? And then Jesus says, you failed. But oftentimes in Christianity, we've read that you as a singular you. You as an individual failed. However, there's some wonderful concept that really helps in the South. It's called y'all. <laughs> you all, the corporate you. You know, all of you, but me. Y'all. And Jesus looks at them and says, Y'all failed. Y'all didn't have enough faith. My professor at William & Mary, who was teaching me the religion of the ancient Israelites, Torah, and ancient Judaism, used to love y'all. She said, back when I was teaching in Minnesota, it didn't work so well. They didn't understand y'all. But it's a concept that not only biblical Hebrew, but Aramaic, which was the vernacular that Jesus and the disciples spoke and can even be translated into the Greek of the New Testament. It's something that they understood. So you are very blessed to live in a linguistic portion of the country where y'all is a thing. And Jesus says that. You all corporately, you together, y'all failed. Y'all didn't have enough faith. 
It's really important because sometimes we internalize the mustard seed as if it's just me. And we continue to perpetuate that misunderstanding when we say to someone, if only you had more faith. The response that Jesus is offering us is, no, y'all need more faith. All of us need to have more faith. Our faith needs to come together and be made manifest for one another. It is not an individual burden. It is for all of us collectively. Because four out of the 12 just had a really high faith experience. And then others are in different places. We are constantly in flux with our faith. If anybody tells you they have it all right all the time, come up here now. I want to meet that person. Because nobody in the scriptures does. Over and over again in the reading from Hebrews, you heard about people who had faith. None of them are perfect. Don't believe me? Read Genesis. Abraham, the progenitor of our faith, is testified in the scripture of being a faithful person. And that's why God declared him righteousness. But this is the same person who would have moments of a lack of faith in God. You know, yes, I believe what God said about the whole lots of descendants things, even though I'm really old and my wife is actually past the age of childbearing and she's barren. I believe God somehow, some way that will happen. But as we're journeying down to Egypt, I'd like for you, my wife, to pretend like you're my sister. We'll just tell this little lie to keep us safe because we don't really believe that God can keep us safe in Egypt, right? And you might forgive him for that one, you know, my, my, my wife is my sister, but then he does it again. He will do it again. He is not a perfect person, but the scriptures say that he did have faith, but it wasn't just a constant mountaintop faith. He lived in a world where sin and violence and evil constantly made his faith flux, but overall, he did have faith in God. God recognized it. God testifies this in our scripture. And we accept it, that from this imperfect person comes the faith that will become the faith of the Hebrews, the faith of the Israelites, the faith of the Jews, and ultimately give rise to the faith of Christianity. It's a wonderful thing. We also recognize the tension of the others that were named there, Cain and Abel, the people of the Israelites, even Moses, who undeniably knew that God was real, struggled with what God was asking for him and whether or not he could have faith that this is going to happen. You know, these are a stiff-necked people, Lord. In fact, the whole concept of the sinful and perverse generation, crooked generation, is directly quoting Moses in Deuteronomy. He says it multiple times because he had to walk around in the wilderness for 40 years because of these people. He understands that even if people do have faith, it doesn't mean that it's always at this level, that it fluctuates and that we seek for assurance, the hope of things not yet seen. We want to have faith in something that we haven't seen with our own eyes or maybe we haven't even heard God say with our own ears, but we yearn to have the experience that lets us know that all of the promises of God, every covenant will be fulfilled. We yearn for this and we struggle with it. So when we have the opportunity to be a vessel of God's encouragement and presence with someone, and instead we choose to say something like, well, you know, if you just had more faith, this wouldn't feel so painful. Or if you just had more faith, we wouldn't be here at all. If you just had more faith, then this whole world would be different. Because yes, if I had more faith, surely no one else would sin and it would never affect me. Tell that to Jesus on the cross. We are a people that recognize that our faith is a gift. In Methodism, our doctrine actually says that prevenient grace is God giving us the ability to even have faith. 
our greatest hymn, the greatest song in the entire world that more people know more than happy birthday, you have to get out of the United States to recognize this, more than happy birthday is amazing grace. I was lost, but now I am found. Not, did you find Jesus? But I was the lost one, and God found me and brought me back. Jesus repeatedly tells us that God is seeking to strengthen our faith, not as individuals necessarily, but corporately. In the same gospel account of Matthew, Jesus says to them, wherever two or more of you have gathered, there I am also, requiring us to be in community, even if it's just a pair. Two or more it takes. He sends them out in pairs to heal and to preach and to teach. He recognizes that this process is a corporate one. None of us, I think, would stand up here before God and say, I came to faith all by myself. I never read the Bible, which is the corporate experience of countless generations put together in writing and then distributed. Never read the Bible. Just spontaneously one day knew the doctrine of the Trinity spontaneously one day came to the conclusion that I am saved by faith alone. Oh, and by the way, then I read the whole Bible, and it simply confirmed the fact that I was right. Most of us would never claim to do that. And if you ever meet that person, I will take you and them to dinner. I want to hear the story. The reality of Christianity is that people came before us. People are helping us in the midst of our faith journeys. And by the grace of God, our faith journey might actually help people after we are gone and we rest in God. That's the glory of the kingdom, that we are continuing to build upon a foundation that long predates us. That's what Hebrews was trying to say. And Jesus is constantly wrestling with his disciples' lack of faith. These are people that laid eyes on him. These are people that broke bread with him. They were there. They tasted the fish and the loaves. They tasted the first communion. They witnessed with their own eyes his miracles and his healings. They heard with their own ears his holy teachings. And even they doubt. That's exactly what our, our, our call to worship, our gathering liturgy said this morning. They're in the boat. He's taking a nap. God forbid the savior of all humankind should need a nap. He's taking a nap. And then in the midst of the nap, the storm comes up and they are convinced because their fear is stronger than their faith that they are going to die. And so they wake him up and say, you must do something, we're going to die. Because surely that's how the Bible was going to end. And then Jesus fell asleep on the job. They all died at sea, the end. Instead, he wakes up and he says, really? You woke me up because you thought you were going to die? Fine. Peace be still. Yeah, happy now? And even then, their response isn't, oh yeah, no, we knew you could do that. Their response was, who is this guy? Who is this that calms the sea, that tells the storm to stop? You mean God incarnate? That guy? The one you just woke up who's now not happy? That guy. That's who you're serving. That's who you're following. And the fact is that corporately, they continually have weak faith. So when we look at someone who is struggling and in deep in darkness and we think to ourselves, surely a lack of faith is a, is a part of a problem of this, what we ought to be saying is, our faith failed. We are encountering a being, a beloved child of God, of sacred worth, who feels like this is not enough, that they don't have the support of the body of Christ, they don't have the presence and the manifestation of God's blessings for them, even in the midst of darkness and sin. They don't 
feel as if God is with them and for them because we have failed. We have failed. And we have failed in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We have work that we have to do in order to be with someone. We have to be able to show them that we long to be God's presence with them, that we long to join them in the midst of this darkness so that ultimately they too may experience the light of Christ shining for them. We have to reveal that to them. And it's not just the job of one of us. This is our mantle in faith. This is what it means for us to be part of the body of Christ, that we have a testimony, we have an experience to share, we have work to do. Now, I have a lot of conversations. I'm slightly hyperverbal, if you haven't noticed. And there are people that don't like to have conversations with me, namely atheists. They really do not like to talk to me. There are others that don't like to talk to me, and some of you are here today. <laughs> others, when they decide to start talking to me about faith, get very frustrated very quickly. And that's generally because you can come at me, and I have a background in non-Christian religion, and I'm happy to talk about all of that stuff too. And I have a little bit of background in the Bible. And I feel quite confident in my place in God's kingdom as far as what my job is. And I've been raised in the faith and I've confirmed this faith and I've been now ordained in this faith and I feel okay. But at the end of the day, the atheist, when they try to get me to say that my faith isn't real or that maybe this isn't all true in some spiritual way, when they try to get there, they get really angry because eventually I just sit back and I smile and I say, you cannot win. And that makes them angry. And they say, why can't we win? You can't prove to us that all of this is true. I said, well, first of all, I never said that all of that was true. I said that I know that there is a God. I said that I know that Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior, that Jesus Christ died, and that that sacrificial offering is more than sufficient for me and the cleansing of my sins and my guilt. That's what I said, and I believe that. But what's more is that I believe that it's true for you too. And they'll say, but you cannot prove it. But I don't have to prove it because the proof is my experience. The proof is that I, like Moses, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, like Elijah and Elisha, I know that there is a God. This is a God who speaks to me. This is a God who lays things for me to do, lays things that are both a blessing and a burden. This is a God that has called to me, knows me by name. This is a God that has ascribed upon my heart not only the name of my Lord and Savior, but reminds me that what is bigger than the sin that comes out of my heart is the grace that purifies it. And no one can take that away. If you burned every Bible, if you shut down every church, if you outlawed every name of God, you could not strip me of that truth. That is my experience, and you cannot deny it to me. Even if you were to cut out my tongue, even if you were to blind me and cut out my ears, you could not keep me from saying in the depths of my being, from my heart, in my head, and from my soul, that this is my God, and that it is God's will that God be your God too. And that is very frustrating to an atheist. They don't usually like that. Because the truth is that this is a corporate faith that we have. It is a faith that has been passed down from generations. It is a gift that we seek to give to the next generation so that they too will grow in their faith. And that when we are gone and we rest in God, that there will still be Christians, not just a remnant of Christianity, but a greater generation, that day by day our numbers will grow. Because the growth of Christianity isn't about saying to, wor to the world, we are the biggest and the best faith. A growth in Christianity is about saying that more and more people now know that God is theirs. 
more and more people now know that Christ is their Savior, died for them and has set them free from their mistakes, their sins, their past, their guilt, and has welcomed them back with open arms and has gone to prepare a place for them in the kingdom to come. And they choose to come and sit at his table and dwell in his green pasture for all eternity. That is what it is to be a Christian, to want to help others discover that gift and that grace. It's not about saying, we got it right and God help y'all. But that we recognize that because of our experience, because of our divine encounters within one another and even with God, we recognize that this is bigger than just one Christian. This is bigger and it is about all of God's people. It is a struggle for us in our moments of frustration with others. Sure, anytime you're talking with someone, we could play Monday morning quarterback and think of things they might have done differently. But how many of us want to sit around and really do that with our lives? Why would we force it upon another? It is not the Christian way. And Jesus reveals this to us. You cannot quantify faith. How much faith do you have? Is it your whole heart? If I were to fill you up like a vessel, would it come up past your waist or does it come up to your neck? How much faith do you have? Well, Jesus, are you talking about my entire life? Are you talking about the time I really nailed it when I was 17? Are you talking about the average? If we take away the lowest and the highest, do you want, what do you want? Jesus never demands that of us. And in fact, he reveals to us that there are things we can quantify. He's happy to give you some objective numbers if you would like some objective numbers. For instance, when the people catch a woman in adultery, they catch her, it's not suspected, they catch her, and they know for sure that she did it because they caught her. They bring her before Jesus and they toss her at his feet and they say, we caught her, what would you like us to do? Because we can tell you what it says in our holy text. What would you like us to do about her? And Jesus doesn't say, well, whichever one of you has the most faith can have the heaviest rock and cast the first stone. That's not what Jesus says. Instead, he gives them something they can quantify. Whichever one of you has never committed a sin, go first. Because we can count our sins, can we not? Some of us can count our sins to the point that we no longer want to use numbers. We understand that sin is quantifiable, but faith is beyond numbers. It cannot be encapsulated. We can try to qualify and quantify our faith. But really, that's not what Jesus is asking. Jesus is asking that no matter how much faith you have today, are you willing to combine it with the faith of others and do something truly amazing? Are you willing to be my body for this world even after I have ascended? Because today your faith is on point, but tomorrow it might be hers. Are you willing to come together and allow the collective faith of the body of Christ to be the fuel that allows the blessings of the world to experience my words, my gift, and my grace? And we have done this. We have witnessed it. There are things that my words, as hyperverbal and as verbose as I can be, cannot begin to encapsulate. I have seen things that medical science said were impossible. I have witnessed transformations of people that psychology said were never going to happen. I have been able to witness and encounter and experience and hear and see and do things that I know no human being can explain. But for God, it's just another day. It's another way that God is continuing to do God's work in and through us. And because of that, I have been able to experience here things that I can't explain outside of the collective gathering of faith. 
every year for Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, we have said that we are going to take that special offering and we are going to put it together and we are going to use it to radically bless somebody or multiple people through a mission. And we've done that through multiple scholarships for our preschool. We've done that through a full scholarship for someone to go back to school at community college. And this year we thought we would do it to rid people of medical debt, that we would help to free them. They've had their bodies healed. Now may they be healed fiscally. And so we thought, we've never raised more than $10,000, but wouldn't that be a great goal? And then I made the utter mistake of actually getting on the phone with RIP Medical Debt Relief, to which they told me, we want you to raise 15000 And I went, yeah, okay, because I didn't have the faith that it would happen. And you know, and you try to cover your bases, well, that's a lot of money, that's more money than we've ever raised before, and I don't want you to get your hopes up, because I'm thinking, no. You're telling me that you think that a gathering of less than 750 people in 24 hours can raise $15,000? You crazy? And then out of obligation, I tell you, we're hoping to raise $15,000. And then your faith takes form. And then collectively, less than 750 people are able to show me that I was the one with little faith. Almost $20,000, over $19,000 raised. And I have never been so happy to have little faith in my life and have God show me that I was wrong. Because we were hoping that with $10,000, we could liberate a million dollars worth of debt. And their expectation was, well, with $15,000, we could do $1.5 million. Yes, that sounds excellent, doesn't it? Yes, it really does. And I would like to cure cancer for Easter. But then because of the collective gathering, people who said, we believe in Jesus Christ, we believe in the manifestation of the Messiah, we believe that Christmas is worth celebrating with our presence and our prayers and our gifts, because people said, no one person gave $20,000, no one person even gave $10,000, but because everyone said, this is what I can give, this is what I want to give, collectively, almost $2 million. I can't begin to tell you what kind of manifestation of faith that is. But that is the kind of thing that makes Jesus say, y'all had faith. And because of your faith, others are going to be impacted. Because of the gifts of the body of Christ, others are going to recognize that, you know what? It's not about my faith, it's about God's grace. When my faith is weak, when my faith is barely present, when I'm not even sure I have faith anymore, God's grace is enough. It is more than enough. God's grace in human vessels, God's grace in human gifts, God's grace in the body of Christ, the church, is enough to bring back hope, to restore a vision and a chance for assurance to once more take root in, in the hearts of human beings that they may say to themselves, my gosh, maybe it is true. Maybe Jesus is for me. And maybe the people that bear his name as Christians, maybe they could be for me too. And just maybe I could be a Christian. That is the legacy that we have been given. And that is what Jesus expects from all of us. It is not just my faith as an individual or your faith as an individual. It is about our faith, because when my faith is weak, 
yours was strong. And that's just one instance of what God is able to do through those who are willing to pool their faith, who are willing to bring together their gifts and their graces, their presence, their prayers, their gifts, their service, and their witness. God can change lives. And everything that we do in our faith, every time we choose to read the scriptures, every time we choose to set aside time to be in prayer, every time we choose to come and be in worship, we are saying that we believe that collectively our faith can move mountains. It's about to move a mountain of almost $2 million in debt. And I didn't think it could happen. I am so grateful that you have proved me wrong. What mountain shall we move next? May it be revealed and may it be so. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Thank you again for joining us for this week's podcast. We hope you found the message meaningful, and we invite you to join us in person as we gather for worship at Crozet United Methodist Church every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org to learn about ways you can connect with God and your neighbors through the ministries of Crozet UMC. Have a great week.